Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. You can take your Bibles and go with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look primarily at one verse uh, this morning. Amen. Love those little kids. As we begin, I want to ask you a question. Is Thanksgiving a holiday or a lifestyle? For you, is Thanksgiving a holiday or a lifestyle for you? Many of you may be familiar with the comedian Tim Hawkins, uh, who's fantastic. If you don't know about Tim Hawkins, you are missing out. YouTube him this afternoon. If you have uh, seen Tim Hawkins, you've likely seen his uh, sketch called That's the Worst. If you've seen that one, like, <laughs> somebody's seen it, for sure. That's the worst. And uh, the brilliance of the bit is that he kind of hilariously helps us to see how silly we are sometimes at the things we complain about, how we overuse phrases like, that's the worst, right? That's completely the worst. What do we complain about? We complain about a lot of things, but typically we complain about things like weather and food and traffic, right? And other people. Isn't that true? We complain about the weather. It's either too cold, too hot, too humid, right? too muggy. Why do we have to live here? Right? We complain about the weather quite a bit. I will say, I will acknowledge that I have complained more about the weather since moving here from the south. I'll admit it. <laughs> but we complain about the weather. We complain about food. I remember when I was a kid. You know, generally a pretty happy kid, but my mom used to make this dish that was like macaroni and cheese with tuna in it. And she ruined perfectly good macaroni and cheese with tuna. Okay, I've got some friends in the house. It's disgusting. But anyways, we shouldn't complain. We have plenty of food, right? Plenty of food to eat, but we, we complain about food. We complain about traffic. We complain about other people. People that are in our way, people that are too slow, people that are annoying, people that are hurtful. We complain about a lot of things. And ultimately, an attitude of complaining, a lifestyle of complaining, robs us of joy. It robs us of joy. I want to know, is Thanksgiving a holiday or a lifestyle? With that, check out your text, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Primarily one verse this morning inside a beautiful context, and we'll look at, at this both this week and next. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things, note the robustness of that phrase, do all things, everything, without grumbling or disputing. What do these words mean? Uh, the word grumble in the original is one of those classic words that communicates as it sounds. Uh, 
It intends to communicate like it sounds. It's kind of murmur, 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 grumble, grumble, grumble. It's kind of how it sounds when you pronounce it. Uh, it's the attitude or, or the action of sort of mumbling underneath your breath. But it's very clear that you're not happy, right? Very clear that you are not happy about this situation. It's more private, but it's very clear on your face. Okay? This attitude of mumbling, almost like a sound effect. Mumbling, grumbling, complaining. What about disputing, though? The word disputing is a very interesting word. In fact, if I put up how you, you would read it in the Greek, you would see the word dialogue. You would see the word dialogue there. And thus the idea behind the word is the idea of debate or the idea of logic. It's reasoning out something. It's thinking something through deeply. You might say, well, Dustin, why would that be negative? And in fact, it's not a negative word. Um, it's a word that has to be informed by context. It is a good word. In, in most senses of the word, in most uses. It's a very positive word. The idea of thinking something through and dialoguing about it, asking questions about it, that's a very good thing. So this demands that we ask questions. What does Paul mean by this? Well, I would say, while this is often a good word, it's not always a good word. For example, think of a circumstance like this. You're sitting in your car at an intersection in front of a traffic light. Right Now, you may not agree with the light system, but th this is not the time or the place to debate about it, right? Or argue about it. In that moment, green needs to mean go, red needs to mean stop, right? And yellow needs to mean, like, hurry up and get through the light before it turns red, right? That's what it needs to mean in this moment. Not a time for debate. Or think about the aspect of authority. If I, as a parent, tell my kids, like, it's time for bed, I'm not looking for a debate. I'm not looking for a question, right, or an argument or a discussion. I'm looking for obedience, right, immediate obedience. Now think about that as you look at the context of this verse. As he says, do all things without, without grumbling or disputing, without this murmuring attitude or questioning, debating, the question is, what are all things? What are the all things in verse 14? I think the answer is found in verses 12 and 13. Check it out with me. Therefore, Paul says, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for... It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What do you see going on here? What you find is subsequent to this grand statement about the sacrifice of Christ, the humiliation of Christ that has led to his exaltation and our salvation, God is encouraging us that he's at work in us. Those that have been saved by his grace, God is still at work in us. Now, in this, you see a sort of synergistic uh, element to our sanctification, whereby God is at work and he's providing all the power, but we are also working with him in this process, right? So he says, work out, verse 12, work out your salvation. Justification is very much monergistic. It is all the work of God. We receive it by faith. 
But as it is all the work of God to justify our souls. We, in other words, we don't provide any works into that picture. But in our sanctification, it is all God's grace, it is all God's power, it is all God's strength, but we also cooperate. Right? We cooperate in that space. So he says, work out your salvation. Live it out, brothers and sisters. Live it out according to the will of God. Why? Because he's the one doing it. So verse 13, it is God who's at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verses 12 and 13 are giving us a beautiful summary of our lives as a Christian. Right? Our lives as we follow Jesus. God's pulling us towards himself to make us more and more like him. And so Paul says, work with that, man. Work with that. Submit to that. Don't do what? Verse 14. Don't complain about it. Don't gripe about it. Don't ask questions about it. About what? Namely, the word of God and the will of God. You see, we think we know better often, don't we? We think we know better than the word of God and the ways of God. And Paul is gently saying to us, no, you don't. No, you don't. I know what's best for you. God is saying, I know what's best for your life. Trust me. Follow me. Don't complain. Now, as we think about this command to not complain, to not argue, to not drive, to not even question the word of God and the will of God, we need to ask ourselves a deeper question. When do we tend to complain? Think about it. We might be tempted to say, like, who would complain about that, right? I mean, it's awesome that God saves us and changes us and is at work in us to make us more like him. That's fantastic, right? That's fantastic. We have to ask the question, like, when do we tend to complain? Think about it. We tend to complain when my life or my mindset is inconvenienced. When my life and my way of thinking is irritated. In other words, we're not worried about the weather in Florida unless we're in Florida. Right? We're not worried about the traffic jam in Omaha if we are driving our car in Lincoln. It's not really a big deal to us. But when something affects us, when something irritates us or inconveniences us, that's when we tend to complain. Am I right? We're not really worried about the mystery meat and our buddies McChicken if we're chomping on a Chick-fil-A sandwich, right? Not worried about it. But when it affects me, now I'm concerned. It's interesting to see this in the sports world, isn't it? We're not really, we're not really too worried about a bad call against the other team. It doesn't bother us too much. But when it affects us, then it becomes problematic. So I would say, such is the case with God and his word. Track with me. Such is the case with God and his word. We're tempted to grumble, complain, argue, or debate about inconvenient texts or irritating circumstances. 
inconvenient texts or inconvenient or, excuse me, irritating circumstances. We're tempted to complain about the texts that confront our sin or confront our weaknesses. We're, we're tempted to doubt God when we face irritating circumstances. That's when we're tempted to grumble, whine, complain, or argue. Let's think about it a little deeper. Inconvenient texts. Inconvenient texts. Think about verses that express God's design that are contradicted in society. Texts that express God's explicit design that are contradicted in society. Think about things like gender and marriage and God's clear teaching on the score. Someone might say, well, that's not how God made me. And right there, my friends, right there, you have a rub. Will I submit myself to the authority of the word of God, trusting in his goodness, trusting that as the divine creator, he knows, he knows how he made us and he knows how we ought to live? Or will I trust my feelings? Will I trust the messaging of society? Right there, there's a rub, right? Perhaps for some, they can immediately conjure inconvenient texts of scripture. Or what about verses that directly confront my sin? Like it's one thing if I'm reading about something that I don't really struggle with, or I don't really think I struggle with. But we all know what it's like when we read something that immediately kind of steps on our own toes. Isn't that true? Think about specific sins. Like I'm reading about a passage, reading in a passage, and suddenly I read about gossip or laziness. I'm like, oh, I haven't thought about that recently. Or lust or immorality. And God's clear teaching comes to bear on our lives. And we go, I have a choice to make. Theft. Whatever it may be, perhaps it's something that you really struggle with. And what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to either grumble or complain or debate. Like, does God really mean that? Is that really authoritative in this way? Is this really going to be good for me? That's when we're tempted to argue, complain, right? What about what God commands us to do? We often just talk about what God commands us not to do. What about what God commands us to do with regard to witnessing about him? What about how God commands us to be generous, free with what we have? What about how God commands us with regard to our priorities? Just think about it, my friends. So many ways in which the word of God speaks into our lives or the circumstances that he allows in our lives that cause us to complain or gripe. Right? I was reminded this week of a joke. Maybe you won't like this, but try it out on you. Missionary and a farmer. And they were talking about the plight of the poor. And the missionary was like, you know, just by the way, off, off the cuff here, like if you had 10,000 acres, would you give one acre? Just one acre, you know, the yield of that acre to feed the poor? Absolutely. Pastor, absolutely. No questions asked. 
If you had 500 head of cattle, would you give one side of beef to help feed the poor? Absolutely, without blinking an eye. Well, if you had three pigs, would you give one of those pigs to help feed the poor? Pastor, that's unfair. You know I have three pigs. <laughs> that's how it works, isn't it? Isn't it true? When it steps on our toes, we're tempted to say, like, eh, I don't know. And push back on the word of God. What about circumstances? Irritating circumstances. Things that are an annoyance. People that are annoying or irritating or problematic for us. Do we disregard the clear teaching of the word of God as to how we should treat them? Could be a spouse, could be a friend, could be a child, could be a neighbor. Do we disregard what God has to say about how we should live with other people? Blaming it on circumstances. What about disappointment? Perhaps of an as yet unfulfilled desire. This can be devastating, right? Causing us to doubt our faith. Perhaps causing us to doubt our God. But perhaps irritating is not the best word. In some of these circumstances, perhaps devastating is. Hard, difficult, painful. We're tempted to doubt God. Is he really good? Why would, why would a good God allow this? Why would this happen to me? Irritating circumstances, a loss, cause for grief. Some of these are more micro, the more daily. As we go about our daily activities in the car, at work, at home, with friends, some of them are more macro. But either way, Either way, we have kind of two choices in front of us with regard to all of these texts and circumstances. Two choices. We can either joyfully surrender to God or we can opt for a complaining attitude. We can joyfully surrender. We can sort of take our hands off of our life and surrender them to God, believing that he is good, that he's worthy of our trust, or we can opt instead for a mindset, a lifestyle of complaint, a lifestyle of grumbling, a lifestyle of debate. These are our two options. One author writes it this way. To complain is to say, in effect, God, you blew it. You had a chance to meet my expectations, but you couldn't handle it. Nice try, God. Close, but not close enough. Now, most of us probably wouldn't sign our name to that and say, like, that, that's exactly what I would have said. That's exactly how I feel. But when we complain, when we opt for the latter, when we opt for a lifestyle of complaint, that's actually kind of what we're saying. God, you don't know what you're doing. Clearly you're not in control or clearly you're not good. Both can't be true. Right? That, that's how we reason it in our minds. Both can't be true. He's either not in control or he's not good. Because I can't see it. And so we opt for a complaining attitude, a grumbling attitude that often can lead us, spiral us down into discouragement, despair, and then ultimately faithlessness, whereby we're not trusting in God at all. 
were tempted to be like the children of Israel, who are a great example for us in the Old Testament, okay? In a negative way, a great example for us. Now consider on the screen for a moment Psalm 106, just a, a few verses here that summarize a lot of the activity in the Old Testament with regard to Israel. It seems that for much of their story, this was their fatal flaw, this mindset of grumbling and murmuring and complaining about God or to God. So, as a summary, like they were pretty pumped about God, pretty excited about God when he freed them from their bondage in Egypt. They were pretty pumped when they were on their way out, like plundering the Egyptians, adding to their wealth, right? They were pretty pumped when God split the Red Sea and they walked through on dry ground. They were pretty, pretty excited about that. But the moment things turned, the moment things didn't go so well for the people of Israel, what did they do? They opted for complaint, not trust, not faith, not joyful surrender. They opted for complaint, for grumbling, for a debate. The psalmist writes of it, Psalm 106, 21, they forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. They so quickly for, forgot everything that God had done. By the way, we're tempted to do this, aren't we? Aren't we? We're tempted to just forget, to not intentionally remember, like, look at all the things God has done. Look at all the ways in which God has blessed my life. We're tempted to fixate on the thing I can't control or fixate on the thing that is irritating my life or the texts that are inconvenient to my uh, situation. We don't give thanks. Instead, we opt for complaint. Verse 22, wonders in the land of hand and awesome things by the Red Sea. Then they despised the pleasant land. Take note of that, that phrase. They did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness. What happened? Well, according to verse 26, they did not experience what God intended for them. They did not experience it. Now, question, what was that? What did God intend for them? Now with me, verse 24. What he intended for them was the pleasant land. It's good, right? It's good. But where did things break down? Things broke down because they did not believe his word. You see it here? They did not believe his word. They forgot his goodness. They didn't believe his word. Rather, they opted for grumbling and complaint. And what happened? They missed out. My friends, they missed out on what God had in store for them. They missed out on the good things that God wanted them to enjoy. So they missed the pleasant land. How often are we in that place? I wonder. Again, think about it on the micro scale and the macro. But let's focus for a moment on the micro. How often do we miss, throughout our given days, do we miss the joy that God would have us to live in? How often do we miss opportunity 
to be a joy, to be a light to those around us because we've opted to forget God, forget his goodness, and to complain. To live in a negative, pessimistic mindset of grumbling, murmuring, and complaint. How much joy do we miss? I don't want you to miss joy, my friends, brothers and sisters. I don't want you to miss an opportunity to be a light to those around you. You can be. This is what God would intend for you. My friends, this is what God would intend. Don't miss it by opting for complaint. The author I read a moment ago continues to say this, complaining is an attitude choice that if left unchecked will wither my capacity to experience joy. Complaint is an attitude choice. It's something we choose that if left unchecked will wither my capacity to experience joy. I don't want you to live there, my friends. I want you to live daily unwrapping the gifts of God, unwrapping presence from God in the form of his word and in the form of circumstances, not all of which will appear as good, okay? But if we can trust that they're coming from the hand of a good God, we can experience joy no matter what. We can experience his joy in our hearts no matter what. Now, there are two wonderful examples in the book of Philippians that inform all of this context that kind of lead up to this moment in the letter. We're going, only going to look at the first uh, today, look at the second next week as we continue this text. But I want you for a moment to look with me at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. Okay? Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. The first example is the Apostle Paul himself. So helpful for us. Check it out in verse 12. Now, to speak into the context for a moment, Paul is writing this from prison. Okay? He's writing this from an imprisonment. Think about that in terms of context. And this is what he writes, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Let's pause right here. Again, I fear sometimes we, we don't think about tone, we don't think about facial expression, we don't think about context, but ultimately think about Paul in prison, think about what your countenance might be, and think about Paul's, verse 12. Can you just imagine him there? He's not actually writing this, but he's dictating it to someone who's writing it down. Can you imagine his face? I want you to know, brothers. I've got something to tell you. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Think about it. Just watch me for a minute. Do you think Paul was saying, I'm going to take this down. I want you to know, with his chains, ching I want you to know, that's not his attitude, that's not his mindset. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to do what? To advance the gospel, verse 13. So that it has become known 
throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What is he saying here? What he's saying here is that my being in chains, my being bound, my being in prison has served to advance the gospel such that everybody around this jail, everybody around uh, perhaps it's house arrest, everybody around this house has heard that I'm here because of Jesus. They've heard about Jesus through this. Paul, you might get the impression, is amped about it. He's excited about this, verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter... Do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Paul says, only that in every way, can you imagine him? In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now know the next phrase. Yes, and I will rejoice. What is that? He says, I rejoice, present. Why? Because he makes it his choice. Do you see that? He makes it his choice. And I will, I will keep rejoicing. I don't think this, this was just naturally easy for Paul. And I would admit to you and acknowledge to you that this is much easier to preach than it is to practice. I don't always practice this well. I've often failed here. Because here's what's going on. Understand that Paul's in prison. But not only is he in prison, he's also receiving word. It's trickling back to the jail or whatever that some guys out there are using this as an opportunity to slander him. To kick Paul while he's down. Okay? Paul, he's in prison because he should be. You know about some of the things that Paul's done? Paul's a really godly man. Not a godly man. He's a farce, man. This news is trickling to the jail. Paul's hearing this. Now think about this, my friends. Please. What are his options? In this moment, in the prison, Paul has the option to complain. And it's right for him, is it not? He could say something like this. God, couldn't I be more useful out there? Like, I'm struggling to believe that you're good. I'm struggling to believe that you're in control. Like, I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to serve you. I'm trying to advance your gospel, and I'm in prison. Why prison, God? And then, trickle, trickle, trickle. They're saying, what? They're saying that about me? What? I can't handle it. i got to get out there. i got to write something. Fake news! Oh, there, this is fake news. This could be Paul's response. What is his response? 
What is his response? It could have been that very easily. For many of us, that may have been our response. What did Paul do? Instead, he opted for faith. Instead, he opted to not only believe in the goodness of God, he opted to rejoice, to rejoice in his circumstances. Do you see that? Now, just think about everything we just read and, and just let me kind of paraphrase for a moment. He's saying to his people in the church at Philippi, guys, like, I want you to know something. This is truly remarkable. It's amazing. It's fantastic. Like if they were on Zoom instead of a letter, this is amazing. You guys know that like as I'm here, the gospel's going out big time. And yeah, like, yeah, I've heard the rumors. I've heard the rumors, but you know what? I don't care who's preaching it. Like even scoundrels can preach the gospel. The gospel's going forth. It doesn't really matter about me. Like this is fantastic. This is what Paul is saying. This is awesome. This is great. What is he saying? God is good. In the midst of the most difficult of circumstances, Paul is saying, I'm trusting in him. I'm trusting in the sovereign goodness of God. My friends, as we look at verse 14, again, I think, I think, you can make the argument that the all things of verse 14 is informed by another all things. Another all things that Paul has written in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, where he says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things, all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, the devastating, the painful. This message to abandon complaint for a mindset, a lifestyle of thanksgiving, a lifestyle of joy, I believe is rooted in a robust belief in the goodness and sovereignty of God. That he can take anything Things that are not good in and of themselves. Things that may be the product of someone else's sin. God can take this and use it for good in the lives of those who opt to depend. In the lives of those who opt to lean in. To trust in the goodness of their God. And to rejoice in the midst of circumstances both good and painful. What an example. Amen? What an example for us. So Paul knew that each one of these experiences had already passed through the permissive hands of a good father. So he can say, my friends, he can say with a straight face, this is good. Being in prison, being slandered, this is good. And he's not delusional, my friends not delusional at all. This is actually good. So I want to encourage you to live this way as well. Perhaps you will jot this down in the margin of your text or on a notebook. 
I want to encourage you to think this way. I know that God's word will always lead me to good things. God's word, God's word will never fail. God's word will always lead me to good things. Furthermore, I know that whatever I face has already passed through the loving hands of my good father who is able to work it for good in my life. Seeing this way, I believe will unlock, unlock your ability to surrender, to just take your hands off of your life, to take your hands off of your circumstances, knowing that there are some circumstances that are beyond you. Like, there's no way in which we can even really understand it, really fully comprehend what's going on. And so I must trust, even when it's most painful, I must trust that God is good. And what he has allowed, what he has permitted, he can work for good in my life. This is what Paul believed. And look at how God used them. Look at how God filled this man with joy. Regardless of his circumstances, what a blessing this is. So, question. Is Thanksgiving a holiday or a lifestyle for you? For us, is it a holiday or is it a lifestyle? It can be a lifestyle. And can be accompanied with great joy, my friends, as you lean into a good God. Let's pray. Thank you so much, God, for your grace and for your word. Thank you that you have proven yourself over and over to be trustworthy. You did so for the children of Israel. You've done so for us. Father, you bring us to a choice every day. We can lean into you. We can trust you. We can rejoice and surrender. Or we can opt for a complaining spirit. I pray that you would help us as a collective body and as individuals and families. I pray that you would help us to opt to joyfully surrender and I pray that you would remove a mindset and an attitude of complaint for your glory, for our joy. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.